Okay. Well, we're sitting here at 501. Why don't we dive in? So, uh, uh, happy Monday, everybody, uh, and good evening. So, uh, so, and welcome to It's Time to Heal, A16C's uh, clubhouse room to cover the future of bio and healthcare very broadly in a loosely structured interactive discussion. Uh, uh, for those who might not know me, I'm Vijay Pandey, founding GP of the bio group at A16Z. And with me are my uh, A16Z bio general partner colleagues, uh, Vanita Agawala, Jorge Conde, Julie Yu, uh, as well as A16Z colleagues, uh, uh, Jeff Jordan and Mark Andreessen. So we got a full house tonight. Uh, so today our special guest is Dr. Casey Means, uh, co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels Health. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with Levels, uh, Levels tracks your blood glucose in real time so you can maximize your diet and exercise. And, you know, given how important metabolism is, you know, metabolism is life. Metabolism regulates our sleep, our appetite, our weight, our energy levels. Uh, levels helps you maximize your me metabolic health so you can live a longer, fuller, healthier life. So uh, Casey, uh, so some fun facts about Casey. So she got her undergraduate, uh, both her MD and her undergraduate degrees, uh, both from my former stomping grounds, uh, Stanford University. And uh, fun fact, she was president of her class. So clearly we have an underachiever here. Uh, so uh, welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for having me, VJ. It's such a pleasure. It's great to have you. So maybe I'll, I'll throw out the first question. So, uh, you know, we have so many crises in our world that I mean, it's almost hard to keep track, but I, I'm curious, like in terms of healthcare, you know, how much of this sort of current health crises that we're dealing with, when we think about things like type two diabetes and other things like that, how much of that do you think it really is a diet crisis or what's, what's the role mm. of diet? That is such a good question. And, you know, I, I think that research really suggests that the vast majority of our current health crisis is actually a diet crisis. I think first we have to define what do we mean by the current health crisis? So this refers to our epidemic of chronic diseases and chronic diseases are diseases, diseases that develop over long periods of time and they typically don't go away on their own. So this is in contrast to something like an ear infection, which you get and the natural history of it is that it you know, causes a problem and then it goes away typically on its own within about a week or so. So in contrast to this, chronic diseases are things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, dementia, chronic kidney disease, things like this. And the reality is that these are in large part preventable. And one of the key lifestyle factors that leads to them is poor nutrition. Some of the others that you'll often hear about are lack of physical activity, smoking, excess alcohol consumption. But, but nutrition is a key driver. And these afflict currently 60% of American adults, and they drive 90% of our $3.8 trillion healthcare costs. Um, so the question is, how do we know that they're actually diet related? And one of the key reasons is that when we look at these diseases, they virtually did not exist 60 or 70 years ago. So if you look at like 1950, 0.9% of the population had type 2 diabetes. And now that number is 13%. 10% uh, of American adults were obese in 1950. Now that number is 42%. So these, these trends can't be accounted for by changes in genetics or life expectancy, which hasn't changed that much in the past 50 years or so, um, you know, maybe by eight to nine years, these are related to our choices being vastly different than they were just decades ago and massive changes in our 
food system um, is a big, big part of that. So there was um, there was a paper in the journal Science from uh, a few years ago that suggested that if we look at preventability of some of these chronic conditions, more than 90% of type 2 diabetes is preventable, more than 80% of coronary artery disease, so heart disease, 70% of stroke, 70% of colon cancer, these are preventable by a combination of healthy diet and other lifestyle factors. So, you know, we're dealing with monumental numbers here, just truly astronomical. Um, you know, 13% might not sound uh, like a lot with diabetes, but that's almost 40 million Americans. And know, when you look at pre-diabetes with that, yeah, it's 128 million Americans who are pre-diabetes or diabetic. And when you take those other diseases like cancer, heart disease, obesity, Alzheimer's, what's interesting is that all of them are related to dysregulated blood sugar. All of them are related to insulin resistance. That is sort of the trunk of the tree of all of these branches. And so um, we're dealing with an epidemic of metabolic dysfunction and it's it's really not being talked about, but diet is just an incredible lever that we can pull to, to really move the needle on these things. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to a, a, another doctor one time and, and he was making an interesting case that um, even the names for things uh, kind of give people a way out that if you have type 2 diabetes, it feels like it's almost congenital or something like that versus, you know, I'm eating all the wrong food. I eat too much junk food disease or something like that. Um, I think people really don't understand the connection between diet and health or it creeps up on them. Um, I mean, so, you know, then the question is, if this is preventable, prevention is something that is very seductive, but just telling people to eat better and exercise, uh, that falls on deaf ears, right? And that's probably, it's easy to say, hard to do. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. It is um, easy to say and hard to do. And, you know, we're it's an uphill battle in the United States right now. We have a food culture that where foods are and it's almost like everything is marketed as healthy. It's like, this is organic. This is gluten-free. This is, you know, low carb. And it's just, it's really hard to know um, what's right for us. And I think the vast majority of people are trying to make good choices, but there's a lot of conflicting information out there. And there's a lot of noise in the nutrition um, space. And when you look at research, actually, the vast majority of consumers are uh, doubt their choices about nutrition because of conflicting um, information out there. And then so the first piece is it's it's just frankly confusing. The second piece is more of a systems issue thing. You know, we are eating about 100 times more sugar than we did 150 years ago. We we eat ate about a pound of sugar per year in 1900. And, and we're eating on average about 150 pounds of refined sugar now. So that's really a change in the food system. Wait, wait, wait. Let's even slow that down. <laughs> wow. That's a half a pound a day, roughly, yeah. or like a little under that. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, when you've got 55 grams of, of sugar in a, in a soda or in a sports drink, and that's just one beverage you're having, um, it really adds up. Well, it's so, and incredible. then you made the good point that like, so nutrition, like, you know, like eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, bacon's good for you, bacon's bad for you, butter, you know, you go through the list and diet seem like a fad. Um, you know, what's going on with that? And why is nutrition, even just knowing what's right, so hard? And why does it keep on changing? I think it's hard for a number of reasons. You know, I think one is that just comes down to biochemical individuality. We are 
each unique biological or organisms that process food differently. So the idea that there's a one size fits all uh, fits all diet is really a pipe dream. And yet there's many vested interests in making us think that there is one size fits all diet because we can people can really rally behind that and build businesses around that. But that's not actually true. We are such complex organisms. There are certainly principles that I think are true in nutrition, like the human body doesn't need a single gram of refined sugar per day. It does not need that to to thrive. We don't need refined seed oils. You know, there are certain things that are are fairly well agreed upon. But when we look at like a whole complex diet, one size fits all doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's been really interesting research in this. Um, there was a great paper about five years ago out of the Weissman Institute in Israel that was published in Cell in 2015. It was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And what they showed was actually that two people like you and I, everyone you know in this room could eat the exact same standardized meal, the exact same meal, and have completely different glucose elevations in the blood in response to that meal. That's very different than our, our normal paradigm of the idea of a glycemic index, where you know everyone eats a piece of white bread and that has a glycemic index of you know X Y Z, and so everyone's blood sugar will raise the same amount. That's actually we're finding that not to be true, even in a healthy non-diabetic population. And then this research group looked at, well, what are the factors that actually go into driving what causes people to respond differently? And one of the really big ones was microbiome composition. So the gut bacteria inside our bodies processes carbohydrates differently and will change the way a carbohydrate is translated through the gut into glucose in the bloodstream. And that makes a difference because we know that when glucose is elevated in the bloodstream repeatedly over and over day after day, that causes a downstream um, sort of health effect that is not good when that's happening over and over and over again. So let's say everyone up here eats a banana, exact same size. My glucose could go up 50 points and yours might go up 10 points. So it's probably a better metabolic choice for you and not as good a metabolic choice for me. And if I made that decision day in and day out without knowing those differential consequences, we just were all told it was a healthy food. It actually could lead me down a vastly different road than it leads you. So that's where I think, you know, we're just seeing really exciting movement in the digital health world of really personalizing nutrition, understanding that biochemical individuality on so many different levels and letting people cut through a lot of that really noisy space about dogmatic nutrition philosophies and make decisions based on their own personal response. So it's, it's very exciting to see that, um, that coming into play. Yeah, in hindsight, if nutrition is really that individual, it's kind of, you can imagine why all the nutrition information has been so crazy, because depending on who you have in your samples, you could be getting one result or another result. And and just uh, until you start sort of partitioning by the individual, who knows, right? I mean, it just, uh, the, the, it seems like almost uh, hard to do anything scientific uh, without that type of information. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's why we're seeing such a movement towards understanding the body in a personalized way, this movement towards N of one type experimentation and using ourselves almost as our as our own um, control. We're seeing this emerging quite a bit um, because it, it also applies to things like pharmaceuticals. You know, we we know that actually for many of our top grossing drugs in the United States, things like Nexium and Prozac um, and, you know, many other uh, pharmaceuticals that 
for while they work along the popul on the population scale and in large studies, we can show a sort of power with these medications. If you actually look at the individual for the majority of people taking them, they're not having the intended effect. Some of these medications um, have, you know, need, you need 25 people to take them for one person to have a positive clinical effect. And so that's where really moving towards understanding the personalized response to things um, is, is so important. And for instance, 23andMe, 10, 15 years ago, they were one of the first to start testing for these liver enzyme, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms um, in the enzymes that break down things like um, Coumadin and Tylenol and other opioid medications, like the CYP uh, enzymes. And it was sort of really starting to get into this idea that each person may actually have a different response to even a pharmaceutical. And so um, you can imagine if we can test for those things proactively, you can save a lot of problems on the back end with um, complications and, and trial and error and with nutrition, you know, you can imagine given that so many of our, our health issues we're facing today are directly related to nutrition and we don't have a good sense of what is the perfect diet, you know, that really moving towards a personalized approach is, is, is going to have a really high value uh, long-term. Well, well, so then what does, what do you think a solution looks like? I mean, and there's a couple different things we could talk about. One is health and one is performance. And maybe before getting into performance, uh, you know, in athletics and so on, just on the health side, like, what does that look like? Does that look like genomics? Uh, you talked about glucose. I mean, how do all these pieces come together? Yeah, I think it's going to end up being um, a complex um sort of model that comes together uh, that that can paint sort of a holistic picture of someone's overall health and what a comprehensive lifestyle and dietary plan looks like for them. So um, I think personalized genetics is certainly one step in the right direction. I think glucose monitoring is a really great step um, towards it as well. But there's going to be other variables that we need to fit into that model. Glucose is not the panacea for um, all of health and wellness. However, when you do stabilize your glucose levels, what that requires is actually a very holistic um, uh, set of behaviors. So things that factor into glucose levels, for instance, include your diet, obviously. So what you're eating, how you're pairing food, how you're timing food. But it's also some of the other variables in the readout of glucose is how much stress you're under and how you're responding to stress, um, how much sleep you're getting or and how the quality of your sleep, how much or how little exercise you're doing, the consistency of your exercise, your microbiome composition and your micronutrient status. So it's a readout of a number of complex variables. And when you can start to pair data streams like activity data, heart rate variability data, which is an objective marker of stress, um, heart rate data and sleep data, and then merge these things with other data streams, you get immense power in starting to create sort of predictive models for people and really personalize all aspects of their of their their lifestyle. So I think merging a lot of these data streams into models that kind of give us even more power is going to be um, really phase 2.0. Um, so we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that. But I think the the first piece is just kind of like giving people the information like what um you know what is right for you what should you be doing the second piece is then getting people to actually do it and that's a huge a huge struggle as well and that's where i do think biowearables are are going to be really useful because you know the first step is getting the information this is what you should eat this is when you should eat this is the amount of sleep you need to get for optimal metabolic health then the second piece is 
accountability and keeping people on track, giving people a sense of agency and control so they really feel um, empowered to make these decisions day in, day out. Because the reality is to actually have reap the benefits of these behaviors, it does have to be consistent. It has to be something we do day in and day out. And it has to be the vast majority of our choices. And that's where some of the really engaging digital health products that keep people really um, excited about it, some social elements to it, um, gives you the second piece of the coin, which is actually like um, seeing the behavior uh, actually happen day in and day out and sustainability of choices. Um, I think something else you mentioned that was really interesting was like the the performance focus versus the long-term health focus. And I think that's a fascinating piece as well, because what's what's great about a lot of these biomarkers, something like glucose especially, is that that's actually at the at the intersection of current performance and long-term wellness. If you stabilize your glucose today, anyone without disease, you are actually improving your current performance. You're improving your athletic uh, endurance, you're improving your mental clarity, your energy, your mood. And the beauty is you're, you're reaping benefits today. Um, over the long term, making those choices day in and day out, you will see the benefits in the long term as well, the avoidance of chronic disease. So it's it's a wonderful biomarker to track because it is really at the nidus of, of both current wellness and performance and avoidance of long term issues. We'll definitely get to performance, especially since I think it's not just about athletes, it's everybody. But I think Vanita had a question. Yeah, Casey, I love the idea of personalized nutrition recommendations. And I'm curious what you think the role of the physician is going to be. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about the status quo there, as you know, all too well. But most physicians tell patients, quote, eat healthy. I had a, you know, a hack that someone taught me in medical school that, you know, I, I, I still tell patients to walk around the outsides of the supermarket and not hit up the insides. And, you know, that's kind of, <laughs> that, 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 that's, that. Independ, that's independent of food with Michael Poulin. Okay. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I, and that felt like advanced, that felt like, you know, mature advice, advice that was nuanced and what you're talking about is a whole another level. Right. So what do you think the role is for physicians? Is it possible for the care provider ecosystem to actually internalize data at this level of granularity and and make recommendations that are actually um, useful? Or do you think that this that this realm just lives better outside the four walls, so to speak, or the virtual walls of, of the clinic? It's such a great question. And I I I've thought about this a lot because as a clinician, I love working with patients. And you know, I'm certainly not um, you know, pushing for a world where there's no doctors, but I actually think, I personally think that this is going to completely reinvigorate the physician community, the advent of more digital health, if it's done properly. Um, and the reason for that is because this allows doctors to actually do what they were meant to do and what they want to do, which is like the higher level sort of integration and the really the really cognitively interesting part of medicine and to leave a lot of the day-to-day -day, um, aspects of health to the patients in more of a patient-driven um, way. Something interesting about nutrition is that it's so complex in a lot of ways that and, and something like stabilizing glucose that it's actually 
challenging for the human brain to even do the multivariate analysis to give a patient personalized recommendations. And I think that in a lot of ways, a digital solution can do it better than a doctor and than any human brain could do it. Because, you know, I'm sitting there with a patient and I've got, you know, and this is what ultimately sort of inspired me to co-found levels is that I was sitting with my patients in my practice with pages and pages of glucose values, Excel spreadsheets, CSV files. I sort of had their aura ring sleep data. I had some heart rate data. You know, there was no good way of food logging. And I'm supposed to sit there in 30 minutes and put that all together and tell them what their lifestyle plan is and then somehow also be the coach who's on their shoulder 24 hours a day telling them what to do like that's that's not really possible but it is possible for a digital solution um both the the data integration and also the minute to minute coaching you know i remember feeling so much like i wanted to be a bird on my patient's shoulder with them at home, kind of coaching them with the hundreds of micro decisions they were making each day that I know fed into health and cellular biology, things about how they responded to stress, what they were choosing to eat, when they were going to bed, whether they were moving. Uh, but you can't do that. And and doctors want to be all of that for patients, but it's impossible with the constraints and the, the strain that are on doctors. So I think that if we can create with doctors, you know, digital solutions that allow for that part of things to really be supported and empower patients to understand their bodies, be the drivers of their health behaviors, and come into the doctor's office with a lot more information about their bodies. It's going to free up doctors to really focus, I think, on more of the cognitively interesting questions. Um, I think there's also a beautiful way that it changes the doctor-patient relationship. And the reason for that is because a lot of the times a patient comes in, there's a lot of stress and anxiety. They're used to getting one lab test per year about their glucose or their cholesterol, which right now are our main sort of things we look at metabolic health. And they're coming to your office, you know, nervous, and you're kind of drop often like dropping a bomb on them. Like last year you were fine. This year you have diabetes. Like that's that's just a really strange interaction and it doesn't need to be that way. And it's also sort of an artificial way of looking at things. Health is not black and white. It's not that last year we weren't diabetic and this year we are diabetic. Health is a spectrum and diabetes develops over decades, but the way we test for it, we don't see it that way. So if people have more information about what's happening day to day, how things are progressing more gradually, and then understanding their own agency and what's in their toolbox for actually approaching their health. They come into the doctor, it's a completely different relationship. It's more collaborative, it's less authoritarian, it's less of an information um, silo with the doctor. And I think that's actually gonna breed some really nice interactions with the patient. Um, the second piece is that, you know, a lot of times patients will be like, I'm doing everything, I've tried everything and it's not working, I keep gaining weight it feels really hopeless and there can be this sort of blame that happens with the doctor. Like, why isn't this working? Um, but when you actually have this information, again, it comes back to agency and control. Maybe they're eating something that's spiking their glucose all the time that they thought was healthy. And that's one thing that you can kind of help them identify and, you know, move in the right direction. So it takes away some of that, like, you know, that blame and and why is why isn't your why aren't your recommendations helping? It, it creates accountability, and so I think for, so. My personal feelings is that for all those reasons, it's going to actually improve the relationship between the doctor and the patient, and maybe take some of the the psychological burden off the doctor to kind of be everything to everyone at all times. Casey, yeah, we made this a little more concrete uh, that like you talked about, like we thought said this stuff is hard, but like. Uh, this doesn't sound like it's easier. 
like, how's this any easier? How's this like, how's this really make a difference? Yeah. So, well, let's just talk about, I guess, glucose tracking, for instance. So, you know, I, yeah, I think most people are, are interested in nutrition. Most people want to be healthy and we've got loud voices in the space. We've got, you should be paleo. You should be vegan. You should be carnivore. You should be keto. And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what the right answer is. And people will try on a lot of these hats and they'll really go into it and they'll, and unfortunately these are web systems. These are, these are, you try a diet and you virtually have no instant feedback on whether you and what's happening. You might get lab tests six months down the road. You might step on the scale the next day and have your weight has gone up one point, but you don't actually know what decisions you're making are leading to a result. And with biowearables for nutrition, which we've never had before, before continuous glucose monitors, it's for the first time ever, we're closing the loop on nutrition. So we're, what I mean by closing the loop is you are creating a one-to-one relationship between a choice and an outcome. And the choice might be a food, the outcome is your glucose response, and that gives us vastly more information than we had before. So as opposed to kind of trying something on, investing a lot of time in it, not really knowing if it's working for days or months down the road, and then getting really frustrated, a lot of trial and error, you're just really efficient. You're like, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. And within a very short amount of time, you've identified what your pitfalls are and what your strong you know, aspects of your diet are and can actually just kind of let go a little bit like, oh, well, I know what works for me. And so I'm going to focus on these things. And and this is going to lead me towards my my health goals. And so I think in a lot of ways, it just that closed loop biofeedback about nutrition um, really frees people up to just cut through the noise and cut through the trial and error and get down to brass tacks about what works for them and what what doesn't. Does what works uh, and what doesn't, does that change over time? So if a, like a banana spikes me today, will it will it spike me similarly a year from now? Or is that also sort of dynamic? That's a great question. And it is, it is actually dynamic and it can even be dynamic day to day. Um, so an example, and this really feeds back into all the other things that affect our metabolic health, things like stress and sleep and exercise. Um, when we do a high intensity interval training workout, we know that that actually improves insulin sensitivity the very next day. So you may be able to um, and just like a, a quick backup for people or who are listening. Um, so when you eat carbohydrates, they're broken down in the bloodstream into uh, glucose. Glucose rises in the blood and we have to get that out of the bloodstream into the cells for either use to burn for energy or to store. Um, and insulin is the hormone that's released to help us do that. And when insulin is released from the pancreas, it tells the cells to take up glucose out of the blood to be used for energy or store. Um, and when this happens over and over, a glucose spike and an insulin surge, if that's happening really frequently or really high spikes of glucose and high spikes of insulin, our cells can become resistant to the effects of insulin. They actually say like, hey, there's too much of this happening. There's too much of this signal. I'm going to block the signal. And that's when you can start to see blood sugar rising in the blood. And um, this has the a lot of downstream effects because uh, the body has to actually pump out more insulin to get the same amount of glucose into our cells for energy. We actually have start having difficulty getting energy into our cells. And that's when you start to see tissue breakdown um, and issues emerging. So we, we want to keep ourselves insulin sensitive by keeping our, our glucose spikes down. And this is really foundationally the root of so much of the chronic disease uh, we're seeing. So over time, if we can keep those 
glucose spikes to a lower level, keep that insulin to a lower level, our body perks up again to insulin. It, it, it doesn't need to produce as much insulin to basically get that same message across. And, and that's really a positive um, state that we want to be in. So when we, and, and just an interesting fact about insulin, the flip side of insulin, aside from taking glucose up into the cells, is that it's actually a blocker of fat burning. So it's a signal to the body. We have plenty of glucose for energy. We don't need to burn fat for energy. So when insulin is elevated, we're blocking fat burning. So obviously that has huge implications for weight gain and weight loss and why a lot of people are focusing on keeping glucose down to, uh, to basically improve weight loss. So when this, this coming back to your question, um, Something like if we eat a banana after a big, uh, you know, high intensity interval training session the day before, we might see a much lower response to that banana that day. Um, if we had a really poor night's sleep, we will often see a higher spike in response to a food the next day. So that's where if you have all this data being integrated in a digital, in a digital platform and it's able to very simply spit out things like, hey, when you sleep an hour less per night than your average, your glucose response to your favorite foods is 25% higher. So you should really focus on getting that extra hour of sleep. It's a big lever for you. That's, that's like a simple piece of information that you could, um, that you could, that you could get from, from simply putting a couple of data streams uh, together. Hey, Casey, what do you see as the risks of some of this? You know, I think it's, you can sort of um, start to learn a lot of associations, but a lot of associations aren't yet tied, you know, in the sort of clinical canon of evidence to, to outcomes or to really clear health benefits in terms of disease yet, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe they will be, maybe, you know, maybe we'll continue to learn more, but is there a risk to, to having people get kind of over fixated on small fluctuations in glucose that might not necessarily connect to long-term health outcomes? Yeah, that's, it's such an important thing to address because the, the reality is, is that a lot of long-term clinical data in glucose monitoring for a non-diabetic population as a prevention tool has not been done yet. And that is something that needs to be done. And I think it's really, it's a failure of our, our healthcare system. We have a very reactive healthcare system. This is the way our healthcare system works. We wait until diseases are sort of fulminantly expressed, and then we, we reactively treat them either with, you know, pharmacologically or with surgery. And because of that, a lot of our research framework has been around studying disease only when it emerges, um, which is, you know, strange in light of the reality that most of these chronic diseases are preventable. Um, a fraction of research dollars go towards prevention rather than treatment. And, and that is, doesn't make sense in our current healthcare culture where the vast majority of these diseases that are absolutely ravaging our country are preventable. So that's just one thing I'll say is that we need, we need more research to understand how tools like this actually, what they do in terms of leading towards um, long-term uh, health outcomes. And um, our company is, is supporting that intensely. We're, we've partnered with Brigham Young University with University of South Florida, uh, with a number of other institutions doing outcomes-based research in a sub-diabetic population, looking at how biomarker tracking impacts underlying metabolic health. And I, I think that's a huge area where we need to 
uh, invest more research dollars as a country. Um, but I think, you know, I think the risks like you like you were talking about, you know, what's if people are really focusing on these small fluctuations, like what are the unintended consequences of that? Um, you know, one, I think, is that um, we focus too too laser focused on glucose and we kind of miss the forest through the trees. You can imagine a situation in which someone orients solely around their glucose levels and then they eat things that are unhealthy just because it keeps their their glucose levels down. And I kind of joke about this sometimes, like you could drink vodka for three meals a day and your <laughs> glucose would be low, but like you're going to you're going to die very soon. I mean, uh, you'll have a fun ride, but it's going to end quickly. And so that's something we really need to think about. And that's why I think education and clinical insight in any di digital health product um, to really understand the nuances is is so, so, so uh, critical. Um, I think a second risk that you could see with biowearables is sort of disordered, disordered eating, focusing too much on these numbers and these fluctuations. And that's also something I think every digital health company needs to be aware of and be responsible about, um, really focusing on empowering people, on liberating more than trying to make it um, something that's like you're, you're glued to it or tied to it and, um, you know, more, more, um, focusing, also orienting around subjective experience. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Not just winning in terms of numbers. And there's lots of ways you can build this into a product experience that, um, that empowers a more positive use of the product. And I think that's something we're thinking about a lot. And I think all digital health companies should be thinking about, but stepping back, my concern is much more about the fact that, um, we have 128 million Americans with prediabetes or diabetes, most of which is because of a just crazy food culture that is, com you know, completely screwing people over, basically, with the amount of processed refined sugars and foods, high fructose corn syrup, foods that are subsidized by our government and put in the vast majority of foods on our shelves in grocery stores. And people don't know that these things that are we're told are quote unquote normal to eat are are leading us down a path that is potentially avoidable so i i think anything we can have in terms of empowerment and information in the face of this type of food culture that we're in where the normal in america is to be obese or overweight. The normal in America is to be prediabetes or diabetic. And we have zero information other than pricking your finger at home to make any sort of better decisions about the things that lead to these diseases. So I think that the bigger concern I have is about not having the information. Of, and I think that some of the concerns associated with it can be mitigated by just really thoughtful um, product development and just checking in constantly with customers to make sure that you know, we're staying on track and supporting a very rigorous academic-based research program to make sure the outcomes are really where we think they're going to go. Is there a, um, uh, I'm about to, it's probably going to be jarring because you're talking about being rigorous, but, uh, and I recognize that, that, you know, everything you've described about nutrition being so personalized, um, this is almost by definition and a question about anecdotes, but, um, you know, so much of the assumption here is that you know, monitoring yourself and having this closed loop system will teach us um, not to eat things that we thought might not be so um, bad for us or that in fact might be good for us, might be healthy when they aren't. Um, are there examples where the opposite is true? Where, you know, you've seen in the data that 
uh, foods that people typically would assume aren't good for you, um, in fact, aren't necessarily even that bad for you? Like, is there a silver lining here? That is such a, a good question. And the answer is yes. Uh, and a lot of this has actually come in with the ketogenic community. So the keto diet is very popular right now. And uh, for people who who might not know what that is, it basically means keeping carbohydrate percentage of as percentage of your diet very, very low. So usually from about five to 10% of total calories, about 80% total calories from fat and about 10 or so percent from protein. And the idea behind this is that you keep glucose down, you keep insulin down, um, and you can get into more fat burning because you're keeping those things uh, low. Um, so that's that's a, a community of people who have been very interested in glucose monitoring as a way to, you know, see like, is are the choices I'm making with my diet um, actually keeping my glucose low? Are they doing what I think they're doing? And in this community, it's actually they're following a really strict diet. I mean, five to ten percent of total calories from carbs is very, very, very little. And a lot of seemingly healthy foods like sweet potatoes and beans and legumes and carrots are are often restricted because they are kind of higher sugar vegetables. Um, and so we've seen a lot of these members who who use CGM, continuous glucose monitoring, find that a lot of these quote unquote forbidden foods actually don't spike their glucose at all. Like they don't even create any change in their glucose. And and so they're, it's not going to kick them out of uh, ketosis and fat burning. And so many of them have actually been able to to liberalize their diet and incorporate foods that were forbidden, that were uh, formerly sort of forbidden. So that's been really nice to see um, that there's been some some liberalization there. And we had one like wonderful member who had been picking out carrots from all of her salads for like three years. She'd, <laughs> she'd had an incredible weight loss journey, had lost about 60 pounds on a keto diet, but had, you know, been picking out these, you know, beautiful, healthy pieces of produce from her food. Um, and she found out that they did nothing, absolutely nothing to her glucose. And so, um, so that was a nice, that was a nice thing to see. Um, and then we also have people who have been eating a wide variety of a certain category of food, um, thinking that they're all sort of equal in a sense, but then find that one or two of them are much better for their metabolic response than the others. And it, it's not that hard to give up a few of them. So an example of this would be people who eat grains, you know, some people eat, let's say, uh, quinoa, farro, white rice, and brown rice um, as sort of a base for some of their dinners. And then they test all these things. And, and let's say they're trying to lose weight and they're not, they're not being successful with that. Um, they test all these things and they find, oh my gosh, uh, brown rice and white rice, or, or brown rice actually spikes my glucose more than white rice. I thought it was supposed to be the opposite. Um, white rice is supposed to spike me more than brown rice, but it's the opposite for me. And farro is great for me, and quinoa spikes me up 60 points. And so then they're able to continue with a couple great grains that work for them, and they have a little bit more information about two that don't have quite as good a metabolic response. So so I think that like liberalization and honing does come through with a number of people who who use it, um, which is which is nice to see. I mean, that's been my experience of using levels. It's um, it was very a lot of how I respond is goes against conventional wisdom, both both positive and negative. And, you know, and it's a pretty consistent response such that I can you know, it's helped me optimize towards things that don't explode. My blood sugar up. We we're talking before. Um, dates are are just you know depth charges for for insulin and on, on me personally. 
I stopped eating dates to replace it with something else. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and for me, the big surprise was how much rice, just any rice, and which is common in Indian cuisine that I grew up with, is just so awful for me. But ice cream, not that bad. I don't know. I, I didn't realize my mom had it all backwards. <laughs> and, and, and scotch, that scotch thing? <laughs> yeah, well, so so yeah, I, wine, not so bad. Scotch, actually not so good, uh, which is a whole other disappointment, but... Um, you know, I was curious, especially just, you know, as we were getting close to the end of the hour to switch, uh, switch gears a bit. Uh, and especially with Jeff here, I know there's a passion of his as well as talk about um, switching from healthcare to performance. Mm. And, you know, there's a, clearly a spectrum here, right? Because it's not like these are two separate things. And I think performance isn't just for like NFL players. It's for you to be at the end of the workday and not feel exhausted. And yeah. to be sort of mentally um, um, as as fresh as you would be in the beginning of the day, I, I'm curious how you think about that. Like, and where does this come in? I mean, this isn't. Uh, uh, I think one of the things that you talk about is that this isn't just about um, sort of being healthy. It goes beyond that, right? Definitely. Yeah, I think current performance is where you know this has impacted my life hugely, and I know a number of um, my co-founders. You know, I think. Um, the way I really look at it big picture is that intense glucose variability in your day often translates to variability in your subjective experience of the day. And what I mean by that is that when you're going up and down and up and down, often your energy is going up, down, up, down. Your mood is going up, down, up, down. Your uh, you know, desire to be physically active is going up, down, up, down. So the more we can smooth that curve, the more we can also smooth the curve of our subjective experience of our day, which I think is what we're we're all looking for. We don't want to be on a roller coaster and we don't want to be subject to um, to these things that we see, think are out of our control. Um, I, I love our CEO, Sam Corcos. I love his story about what really got him evangelized about, about continuous glucose monitoring, which was, it came down to his breakfast. He was one of these people who ate oatmeal every single morning for breakfast because the box says it's heart healthy and it's, you know, touted as a good source of whole grain. And he was one of those people who like late in the morning, always kind of felt low energy and had this sort of mid-morning slump and would be like, oh, I need another cup of coffee or oh, maybe it's because I didn't sleep very well. And it just becomes a part of your identity. Like late morning, I get pooped. Um, and so he then throws a CGM on and he realizes that his oatmeal is spiking his glucose to a seriously high level, like 180 milligrams per deciliter. So like a 80 or 90 point above his baseline, which is very, very high. We don't want to get that high. Um, and then what happens when you have a big spike like that is your body surges out the insulin to take that all up out of the bloodstream to get back to homeostasis. And often the body will overshoot. It will suck up all that glucose and you'll actually crash down to below your baseline. And that process is called reactive hypoglycemia. And Sam noticed that when that was happening, well, that's exactly when he was having those jitters and not feeling good and that slump. And he would have never thought, oh, it was the oatmeal because everyone says oatmeal is healthy, but it was that was the last day he ever ate oatmeal. He didn't go with the sort of modulation uh, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, you can add fat and protein and fiber to carbohydrates and sometimes blunt the glucose or spike. But he was just like, you know what, I'm done. This has been, I want to see what happens if I move away from this. And now he eats more like avocado and eggs for breakfast, very stabilizing of the blood sugar. And that is just gone for him. So something that was 
inhibiting his mourning, that he kind of was part of his identity is now actually because he was able to link a choice with a subjective feeling with objective data, that trifecta really drives behavior change in a very non-emotional way. Like we kind of joke with things like that. It's like, it's almost like food poisoning. It's like when you eat clams and then you get really sick, like, it's not like you want, you don't want to go back and eat clams the next day. Like you have this internal thing of like, I don't really want that. It's not, I know it's not good for me. And that's what what his experience was. And so, so that's really how I think one of the ways that it can help our daily performance is just keep us keep us stable. And we want to be avoiding those reactive hypoglycemia dips. And you can imagine, you know, I think 60% of American calories that are consumed are refined processed carbohydrates. And so those are going to be the things that are going to really spike glucose and cause dips. And if you're the average American that's eating three meals a day, plus a couple snacks in the middle of the day, most of those refined processed carbohydrates, you could potentially be going on six glucose roller coasters per day. And as opposed to zero um, with simple tweaks. Um, And so I think that's, that's a, that's really a a nice thing. And, and yeah. And so, so performance, energy, mood, um, mental clarity, these are all things that have actually been studied, um, and have been shown to be associated, like associated with more stable glucose levels. So that's, that's sort of the day-to-day side. And then, you know, we certainly could jump in, like talk about the athletic side, because that's a whole, a whole different area that has been thrilling to see, um, glucose monitoring intersect with but yeah i've had yeah. a little journey on that personally um you know for years i would i, I love mountain biking and we'll, we'll try to do multi-hour rides and for years i would just bunk like you know 90 100 110 minutes in just like so just feel terrible then a friend turned me on to uh, constant noshing while you're working out just to you know replenish the calories and then I found I overcorrected with some of the bars that were out mm. there and I, it'll explode high. So now I find I, I, I can I can go well beyond 90, 100 minutes um, while eating, but I just have to eat things I don't react anywhere near as well, too. And then then in the, I'm just styling. And so most of most, a number of the pro athletes I know are really, really super sensitive on their food intake and have all, all these exotic uh, approaches to trying to figure out what spikes them and what's not, <laughs> blood tests, everything else. So it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah, this is so endlessly fascinating to me because I think that glucose is or glucose management, like you're talking about, is is like the next frontier of athletic performance. It, it's not even the next frontier. It's happening now. I mean, we have... NHL, NFL, NBA people, just, you know, the nutritionists from their teams just coming from all angles asking to get their their hands on this because it, we're really learning in the research that keeping your blood glucose stable is actually one of the biggest hacks we can do to improve our athletic um, performance. And it, it actually comes, bonking is a fascinating example of this. Um, the idea of bonking is that, you know, we have about two hours worth of stored glucose in our bodies stored in the circulation and then in the muscles in the liver as chains of glucose called glycogen. And so two hours into an event, like we're out of glucose. If we're not good or able, good at, or able to fat burn effectively, because we've kind of, because our bodies are so used to just processing glucose for energy, we haven't, um, had many times in our lives when our insulin's been low and we've had to go into fat burning for energy, then in that time when you run out of glucose, your body's not going to flip the switch and turn on fat. We're not metabolically flexible. We're metabolically inflexible. And if that happens two hours into a bike ride, 
you're gonna bonk. You have not adapted and sort of um, worked those cellular pathways to do fat oxidation. So then you think about a situation when you're in which you're an athlete uh, in training and you actually train in a lower glucose environment. You don't eat a high carb meal. You don't eat a gel or a goo or a protein shake or a bar or any of these foods that are you know filled with glucose meant to give you energy. You actually start training in a lower carb state and a lower insulin state when you're training. Then all of a sudden your body is actually forced to um, you know, tap into fat burning for energy. And slowly over time, your body adapts to become more metabolically flexible, to be able to flip the switch on to fat burning when your glucose is low. And you kind of get out of the situation of being able to bonk. And there's a whole class of elite endurance athletes that they call themselves low carb athletes or carb cycling athletes or keto adapted athletes, fat adapted athletes, who are training in this state so that they can become just maximal fat burners during their events. And there are now people running marathons, fasted, no glucose, haven't eaten for eight, 10 hours and can run a full marathon um, doing this. Um, so not something I would recommend someone to just jump into because you really, the body does its adaptations over time. Um, but there's actually some really interesting research that's come out um, in the last uh couple months, we actually just published some articles about this on our, our blog, levelshealth.com slash blog about um, fasted for the recreational athlete. So not non-elite, like what, what fasted workouts can do for your metabolic health. And the idea behind that is let's say you wake up, you don't consume any calories and you do your workout then it actually seems to have really favorable effects for your insulin sensitivity your 24-hour glucose levels. Um, again, not something I would just jump in and do tomorrow, but maybe ease into it, start looking and you know, doing lower carb snacks before your workouts, and then ultimately trying to do maybe a fasted workout. Um, talk to your doctor before doing any of this. But um, it's the way I think many of us at levels on the team think about this now is that it's kind of like you're getting a double bang for your buck from your workout. You're getting the cardiovascular and the muscle benefits but when you do it in a low glucose state, you're also getting that metabolic flexibility, metabolic fitness benefit as well, and kind of keeping yourself tuned up from the standpoint of well, energy management in the body. And you're talking about that for weight loss or even for muscle gain, you'd still want to do that? Um, this is more looking at endurance athletics. So, so okay. yeah, so where you actually need to be running for like a long, a longer period of time. Um so biking, um, running, distance running, things, things like that. For sprinters and power lifters, those are or more resistance training type workouts. Those are going to be more dominantly, um, they're going to use glucose more preferentially for those types of really quick events. Um, with that said, I still think there is um, a benefit for those types of athletes. And we've had a number of them go through our program. Um, using glucose monitoring. And the reason for that is because a lot of people are eating very high carb processed foods before, during, and after their workouts. And an unforeseen consequence of that is that it actually can send you on a glucose roller coaster before, during, or after your workout. And you can kind of overshoot and like overcompensate. You don't need to go up a hundred points to restore your glycogen and your muscles to build muscle. In, muscle. You might just need to go up 20 or 30 points on your glucose to actually replenish all that glycogen. So I think in a lot of ways we might be overshooting with some of these nutrition bars and these sports performance foods. Um, and you might end up actually 
kind of stepping on your own foot with this because you have this big glucose spike, a big insulin result uh, response, and then crash down in the middle of your workout. And that's not what you want. You still want that gentle rolling hills. So even for power sports, lifting, sprinting, um, I think the insight into whether you're fueling appropriately um, and and not kind of overshooting on the glucose can be really, really uh, helpful. So we're coming up on time. I think maybe it's a good time to reach out to some of the questions we got over the last few days. Uh, so one question, and this one's a little out there, but it's just fun to riff on for even how you want to take it, Casey, is um, people were curious about the social aspects of all of this. And like, I don't know if they were getting into whether this could be even a social network or, but you know, how do people in, uh, interact with each other, I guess, uh, with this information are, you know, everyone's different, but are there phenotypes? Like, is there a, a club that like, uh, you know, certain people have the same reaction to things and is it interesting to handle this socially? Yeah. It's a, yeah. So this is something we're thinking about a lot. And my feeling is that glucose monitoring is going to be, have a huge social wave. Um, and the early indicators of that are a few things. One is that if you look now that consumer CGM use is coming online, um, people love sharing this on social media. People love taking screenshots of their glucose responses and sharing it with people. And I think it's because every glucose curve is sort of like a story. Every glucose curve has a narrative to it. Um, and it, it, it tells you something about, you know, cause and effect in your life and it's worth sharing. So, um, so I think one, just the shareable nature of it, um, is very, very compelling to people. The second thing is that I think that often with health, um, health related, um, things like, you know, like steps or Strava or, you know, all these things, people like to do health in community. People often do better when they are in community, when they're working on their health behaviors. So um, I think there's going to be an element to that where people are actually more successful when they're um, competing in some way, if they want to, when they're accountable to others and when they can share their successes. Um, health outcomes are generally better when we do them as a, a group. Um, so I think, I think those are the inherent shareability of it, um, the narrative element of it, and and the fact that people do better with it are all um, important elements. So, um, so we're certainly starting to build that into the product, and I think we're going to see community and uh, bio wearables just continuing to become uh, a big thing. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Uh, I, I think that's going to be really interesting, especially since a lot of this stuff. Even with the information, it's not easy, right? If you're, uh, you know, on the verge of type 2 of diabetes, you're overweight, it's a lot of work and it takes, uh, and having, I think, people around can make a huge difference. At least I went through this personally where I was uh, pre-diabetic and I don't think even think I was that heavy. Mm. But I think when uh, you're from the Asian, uh, you know, Indian uh, subcontinent, uh, I guess you don't have to be that heavy to be uh, pre-diabetic towards diabetes. And that really was a huge wake up call for me. Mm. But, um, you know, and it was helpful that I had friends that were working out and like, and, and even on social media, people are pretty encouraging about working out and all that stuff. But uh, I think if people need all the help they can get. Definitely. And I, I think that, that that touches on a third, a third pillar, which is education. You know, we, people can learn from their own data and people can learn from the information um, in an app. Um, but, 
where you can really learn is by crowdsourcing everyone else's, you know, experiences. And um, I, I, I can definitely see a, a world in which people want even more sort of structured guidance on their journey to metabolic fitness. So you can imagine it almost becoming like a platform for others to guide people through sort of a metabolic journey, um, orienting around uh, glucose. There's you know, huge, huge industry and market built around fitness and nutrition influencers and people, you know, in a sense, kind of blindly follow and, and, and try these things. And, um, you know, you can kind of imagine a world in which that's injected with everyone tracking their personal data along with this person that they're, that they believe in and that they're following that they want to sort of really, um, you know, follow their guidance. Um, I think there's exciting potential for, for the platform element of it as well. Yeah, it's going to be quite the world with uh, glucose tracking influencers that help <laughs> us uh, do better. Um, so we're right at time, and I think what we're going to do is uh, do something slightly different than we've done in weeks before. Uh, so first off, you know, thank you, Casey, so much for uh, for joining us for this first part. And what we're going to do is we're going to hand off to uh, 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 our colleague Venkat, who's been running uh, our after party of sorts, uh, uh, sort of the part two of this and let him start running the show from here uh, with that. Uh, but thank you, uh, you know, thank you, Casey. Thank you all the panelists today. Thanks so much for having me.